0: Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. Hiring the right sponsor is like hiring a CEO of a company. Everything rides on the decision, and very few people are actually qualified to do the job. David Priel, principal of YDL Investments Group, has a formal process that helps him find the right sponsors with the right deals to mitigate risk and maximize returns. Some of his recent deals have generated over 40% returns for his pool of investors. So today we have with us a man from the Holy Land the land of Israel. I've been looking forward to doing this podcast, Jerusalem specifically. He is the principal of YDL Investments Group. He helps people with as little as 30,000 bucks invest in cash flowing U.S. multifamily. He's placed close to $8 million helping people uh, get return on their money. He is David Priel. David, welcome to Street Smart Success.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me. Great to be here.
0: You got it. And so you and I, uh, we uh, schmoozed a little bit before we hit record. I know you're not a, uh, a native, but where did you grow up and when did you move to the promised land?
1: So I grew up in northern Jersey, a little town called Bergenfield. You, most people have heard of Teaneck, which is more nearby that. Um, I spent some time in the city and my family and I moved here in about 13 and a half years ago 2008
0: got it and uh what prompted you to make the move
1: uh mostly ideological reasons religious reasons there were communities here that we wanted to be a part of we wanted to have a less materialistic lifestyle than what we were experiencing in america and this we had we had friends here we had a community here and we we liked what what, uh, what it offered um in terms of raising our children
0: Wow. Is any of your nuclear family there, or were you the first one to move?
1: Uh, we were the first ones to move. The, the plan was to have a couple of them follow us, but that did not play out as, uh, as planned,
0: but we're still holding that hope. I see. And, that's on, and is that on both yours and your wife's side? That is correct. I see. And then uh, what were you doing before you left 08 career-wise? I was a rabbinic student. Okay. So you were a student. Yeah. Okay, so are you a rabbi? Yeah, I am ordained, yes. Okay, so how and why real estate?
1: That's a great question, how did I get to this? So when I started working, when I needed to start working, the first, I guess, real job I had was a mortgage broker here in Israel. Uh, I had just gone through the process of buying my own home and I I was very happy with the group I had used, called First Israel Mortgage. Still up and running today, doing some great stuff. Uh, anybody listening needs to get a mortgage, definitely check them out, firstisrael.com. And so I joined their group and I was doing mortgages here in Israel. And in the course of doing those mortgages, I came across a, a lot of families who had some significant, they could have up to $200,000 even and couldn't afford to buy anything. Because unlike in the US, the mortgages are capped at 70%, technically 75% for some people, but a lot of place people were stuck at 70% you weren't able to finance your closing costs. So you had to come up with about 40% of the money in a lot of situations just to to buy a home. And and the cost of housing is very high relative to income. Um, at the time, a couple of years ago, I saw a chart, a few years ago, I saw charts that had a, a graphic showing the, the cost of housing relative to average salary. And like in the US, it was like two, two and a half years of average salary, bought the average home. And in Israel, it was like 12 and a half years. That's just to put a perspective on how difficult it is to buy. So I had a lot of people coming my way and they had a little bit of money and they couldn't buy anything. And and I wanted to help these people out. I had been investing in the markets uh, passively since I was a teenager. And in 2008, when everything was kind of crashing down, I decided it was a great time to get involved. So I bought my first stock in 2009. And that kind of started me on a whole different journey, which is kind of beyond the scope here. But I knew there were investment options out there. And people were just kind of sitting on the money in their bank and it was, you know, between inflation and just, you know, money sitting there. So let's just use it for stuff. It was being depleted. So I wanted to find an opportunity for these people to, you know, do something with that money and maybe, you know, but want they'd be able to buy a home for themselves or help their kids out or, you know, just retire normally. And after looking around a while and and kind of, as we settled on uh, U.S. multifamily and commercial real estate, as a way to diversify into multiple deals. That's how we structured the company to allow people to go into many deals. That's more from my financial backing, that background. And we started helping people here. Originally was helping people here. Now we have half my client bases in the US, but the idea was to help people get started on real estate investing. So I have a lot of investors to that end who are, some, some are new, I've been doing real estate for a while, but some are new to investing. The, the, the magic number 30,000 comes from the fact you can diversify down to three deals at 10000 each. So that's kind of the story of how we, we got to where we are today.
0: You said your financial background, and so what was that? I mean,
1: yeah, I started off in the stock market. My actual bachelor's is in computer science, but I spent years in the stock market studying it, learning... Uh, different investment strategies, trading strategies. And, and that background is comes from a, the perspective that I gained is you want to have diversified streams of income. You want to diversify yourself to protect against downside, to expose yourself to upside. So when I started out in this real estate journey, my goal wasn't to become an operator and have X amount of doors under management or own X number of properties. My goal was to help X number of families create diversified income and long-term wealth accumulation through you know, diversified real estate. So so you're to this day, we operate as a marketplace, not so much as an operator.
0: Okay. So you got your degree in computer science. You said you have a financial background. And so uh, financial background in terms of basically just doing your own trades with your own money, or did you actually, did you become a broker? What What specifically was that?
1: It's a self-education. I spent a lot of time learning about finance and investing and different options. And so I know I don't have any formal certifications in anything. I've looked into getting them in the past. I found a lot of them would be limiting in terms of once you gain certain certifications, it limits your ability to do other things. It opens up certain doors and closes other ones. So I never followed through on those. Um, So it's it's mostly self-taught.
0: So I have a question, kind of like an existential question for you. I mean, not existential to a rabbi. <laughs> it's good. It's good. <laughs> so don't don't, 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 I don't want to let you down. Here. I, was, I
1: was getting excited there.
0: <laughs> I don't want to let you down, David. Uh, no, in fact, it's rather prosaic and boring. I, I think compared to compared to that, but it, it's this. So. I used to just because this one friend of mine in particular has been a very very successful real estate guy since I've known him, and uh, you know he just got really really rich, you know, fairly early on. When and I'm gonna I'm gonna say fairly early on when we were like he's a handful of years older than me, but like when we were in our thirties, he was already. Killing it and he's filthy rich now. And so I I got turned on to real estate through him. And so I always just loved the idea of cash flow, you know, and this is going back all that time. And I just thought, well, stocks, you know, you basically get a dividend of 2% or 3%, and it's taxable. It's like And, you know, come to this point, I realize, and I hear all these guys in, in multifamily real estate just go, "Oh, you know, all that we, you know, we were in the stock market, and now it's you know, stock market's terrible." I'm paraphrasing, but the gist is, is that you know, the, the stock market's not the place to be; it's too volatile. And real estate is is where you should be. And in my mind, look, had I put ten thousand into Apple in, in nineteen ninety, which I did not have, and nor would I have done that had I had the money, but nonetheless it would be worth 40 million dollars today and i think the same is true of berkshire hathaway not to mention a bunch of others and so i'm going on and on here but to me it seems like it's a a a really uh, unsophisticated superficial view of of that and i'm probably tipping my hand too much here but like what's your view of that having the extensive background that you do
1: yeah, that's a great question. I did a webcast a webinar on this a while back: the stock market versus real estate. And I, I, I agree with what you're seeing out there. A lot of people are in real estate and they just kind of like promote it and pump it up. And I feel a lot of them just don't really get the other asset classes, so it's kind of superficial. Um, I'm a big all the above kind of guy. You know, my business is real estate, but my my mission is financial education. I just did a webinar today, uh, presentation today for 45 people. And I spoke about all different aspects of, of investing and in finance and comparing investing to pensions and factoring in inflation. And real estate occupied maybe two minutes of the entire hour presentation because you know, there's a big financial world out there and there are a lot of opportunities out there. And real estate is one of them and it's a great one. And, and I think people are foolish to not have it in their portfolio. But I mean, there's great stuff in the market uh, there's a lot of fascinating stuff you can do in the in the in the in the insurance space, life insurance space, and then there are all these small business opportunities out there. It's it's just you know we live in a world we live in such an interesting point in history where so many people have so much access to so many opportunities that like never existed before. And you go back even 50 years, and and the the access to these opportunities just wasn't there. So why limit yourself to to one way to make money? I mean, I started off this presentation earlier today, I started it off by talking about part of what investing is about is you know, there are kind of two approaches to, to general finance in life. One of them is the old school approach of show up to your job every day for 30, 40 years and punch the clock and get your 401k or your IRA or retirement account, and that'll support you the rest of your life. And it's a very limiting path because if that doesn't work, you're stuck. Um, but what it's trying to do for people is make them feel good and feel like, okay, I'm not taking risks. Without what they don't realize is they're, they're walking on this tightrope over this, this, this precipice. And if anything goes wrong, they have no, they have no recourse. The other approach is to say, we're going to tackle this head on. There's risk in life. Life is risky, but we're going to engage with this risk. And the way we're going to engage with this risk is by, is by learning about the different opportunities that are out there, investing in different ways. And, you know, real estate is great today. Is it going to be great in 20 years from now? I don't know. I mean, it was great for a long time, but things change. So I'm not stuck in real estate. I'll do real estate today, if, the, if, the, if things change and real estate's not a good place to be, I'll go somewhere else. Because you know ultimately it's all about you know putting your money in the best places for yourself and your family. It's not about committing to one industry.
0: Yeah, I, I was curious to know your thought on that. When you said you were kind of giving a litany of different things, your life insurance and, and different things you can invest in, I think you said small business. When you say small business, I guess in that context, were you talking about in terms of actually acquiring a business or investing in one? What were you, what did that mean?
1: I mean, either or. It's all those, those are all options. You know, there are small businesses that go up for sale for 500000 bucks that are throwing off 20% a year, and it's mostly managed by somebody. So you can do that with your money. Um, there are people I know who are buying Amazon businesses that are throwing off 20% a year. You can maybe 10% now. You can buy, you can go into these websites, uh, WeFunder, and you can buy into, I, I own shares. I I I bank with Mercury Bank. I own shares of Mercury Bank. They did a private offering to people through WeFunder to all their all their clients, so I bought a piece of it. You know, there's so much, so many ways to be a part of something. Did I put a huge part of my portfolio into that? No, of course not. It's a speculative bet, but. You know, you have a couple of those, you have a couple of other things. You have your larger pieces, you have smaller pieces, but you're always on the lookout. You're always aware and, and and thinking about what's happening in the world. You know, everyone talks about historical, historical, historical. I'm looking at the world today, where we are because of MMT and the way it's played out, the modern monetary theory. We're in a place we've never been before and we have no idea where this is going to go. So yeah, I know the stock market has had historically roughly 8% a year returns, but honestly, we are in uncharted waters right now. So I don't know what's going to be. I know that governments are trying to manipulate money supply to create unlimited growth, so I'm going to keep playing according to those rules for the time being, but I'm also aware of the fact that it can be turned on a dime, and I'm keeping an eye on that as well.
0: You know what? uh, Scary, but I get it loud and clear, and it does just speak to having your eyes open, and it does speak to diversity uh, just because tell me then, David, like what you do in multifamily. Um, I, I did listen to a podcast you were on. It's how I found you. But it's probably a month and a half ago. And so I, I think what you're doing is you're finding opportunities and offering them to investors. And maybe you could fill me in on, on what you're doing, how you're finding sponsors, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yes, yeah, so I, I have a partner. He's also here in Israel. He has about 15 plus years experience in the underwriting space. So the way we divide up our business is I focus on the investor relations side and business operations. He focuses on the operator sides and deal flow. And what we've made his business is finding operators. We have a whole process We have a very rigorous process, um, very thorough questionnaire and background checks and deal review and narrative review where we spend a lot of time reviewing operators and how they work. Uh, making sure that their deals are good, their deals are consistent with what they said they were going to be, their communication is good, obviously a criminal background check. And our goal is to onboard, um, two o- at this point we're onboarding two operators a month and that's creating deal flow for us. And the idea of our deal flow is we want to bring to our investors, as I said, diversified deals. So uh, we set out with a mission in finding these operators to have operators who work in different markets, who work in different sectors. And to that end, in the last half a year, uh, we've done... Deals in. We bought an opportunistic industrial property in New Jersey. We bought a multifamily property in Austin. We bought into a self-storage portfolio in Georgia and Tennessee. We bought into a mobile home park portfolio in Georgia, Tennessee, and Florida.
0: Very interesting. And we
1: also we also had we also had money in a deal that was going to go to a mixed-use portfolio of an upstate New York, and then that deal it was too, it was a massive deal, and there were some complications, and it fell through before it, before it closed. But again, the goal there is 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 geographic diversity, diversification, um, asset class diversification, and you know it, it, it's so far so good.
0: I see. And when did you start doing this?
1: So I think we're coming up, with somewhere around our five year anniversary of our first closing. Our first closing was back in February of twenty seventeen. That was a little three, not so little. But it was a, a three uh, tenant retail property in Tulsa, Oklahoma. That's been a great little property, paying out eleven percent a year. Beautiful cash flow. Minor complications, but it's been great. So that was our first closing, and so
0: we've been doing it about yeah. So it's been about five years since our first close. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P and L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and, therefore, can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, Vice President, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305 467 five nine oh nine you'll be glad you did so what is the good bad and the ugly in in five years you know you guys have created process around identifying sponsors sounds like you're agnostic, agnostic. and you're clearly not agnostic but you're agnostic on asset class and so and now you're looking for diverse, diversification geo and, and by sponsor five years in what's the good bad and the ugly
1: well, the good, the good is is we're growing. I mean, I, I one thing which I learned early on in this podcast is I have to update my LinkedIn profile because we're way past eight million. Thank God, uh, we're closing in. I think on twelve right now, uh, so we're growing rapidly. Uh, we have, the deals we're in are, are doing great. We had a bit of a slowdown in, in exits. I was hoping to have some exits in the last year or two, but COVID threw that all off. But uh, this year we're already on track to have uh, three or four exits. We have one property already under contract. That was one of our, our tough properties during COVID. Uh, we had a little bit of mismanagement on the property. We had a lot of COVID challenges with the uh, eviction moratorium and people not paying rent. And that was in a very blue state. Uh, so we had a lot of pain over there, no no distribution, distributions for about a year and then we got a buyout where our investors are making on a 2 year hold they're walking away with 44% profit so you know it was a painful deal and we're leaving money on the table but you know that's that's pretty solid for a tough situation um we have another deal that we just put on the market we haven't sold it yet but we've been in that deal now for about a year and a half and again we're looking at something like between 60 to 80% to our investors that's phenomenal i got even a better again even better story happening right now we're looking at a looking to sell a property we got a buyout offer on a property that we actually did a secondary raise on it. One of my investors came in with a large sum of money, so we did, and then he wanted to pull some out, so we gave him profit on that and brought some more investors And later on within the the first year. And I have some investors who, if we sell the property now, which we're we're close to a contract on that, I'll have to hold their cash for a few extra months to not trigger short-term capital gains. That's how fast the turnaround is going to be. And we're talking over over 50% on their money. So we've had some really great wins in the last, in the coming up. And we've had some nice wins in the past as well. The ugly, I always lead with the ugly. It's always good to lead with the ugly. The worst the worst situation we ever had, this is so early on. And this is why doing this is such a, you have to be so careful when you do what we do, uh, especially with other people's money. We had it early on before we really had a good process in place. We're, we're on our third our third process right now for betting people. This is before we had like anything, or I guess you can call it our first process. But we had a deal where we went in with somebody and it was basically a simple, it was supposed to be a simple fix and flip in New Jersey. You just go and buy the property, fix it up for a couple months and then flip it. And we basically were relying on that. This is a person who had some experience and he was taking a lot of money and he had someone else working with him who had about 10 years of experience and they were taking a lot of money from family and friends. So we basically relied on the fact that if things go wrong, he's basically going to burn his entire inner circle. And that's exactly what happened. It was it was an absolute nightmare. So we, we were lucky. We walked away with a 33% loss, which is painful. But most people walked away with nothing. It was a complete mismanagement situation. It was poorly handled from start to finish. Zero accountability, zero responsibility on their end. It, it was it was an, it was a nasty situation. And what made it more all the more painful was it was it was a relative of somebody we were working very closely with at the time. But thankfully, because we had people diversified, um, we helped, We told people from the get-go on that deal, this is the parts we were right. We said, Look, this is a new operator, don't put in a lot of money. We did a small deal with them to start, it was a very small, it was $170,000 raise. We told people to put in small sums of money. Uh, so relative to their total invested amount, it was quite small. So yes, there was money lost. And, and, I, and I should point out, we also put money into that deal. We At that stage, we weren't putting into every deal, uh, but we made sure to put into that deal because we knew it was a new operator that we didn't have experience with yet. And we made sure to put our own money in as well. So we were, we were alongside the investors on that one in a pretty significant way. And the people who were diversified, you know, it hurts, but overall they, they still had a good year and they're still doing
0: well. Was that, did you say that was a fix and flip?
1: It was a fix and flip. Yeah. That was our last single family home we did. And we learned a lot from that experience.
0: Is it true by the way, that it's impossible to love God and money too?
1: Oh, so now you, you could you could have prefaced that with I now I have an existential question for you. Yeah, I, I would say it's impossible because I think anybody who's true to themselves, if you're loving money, what does that mean? You're loving money. If you want you want to go down this road? You want this? It means no. it's a pretty deep rabbit hole you can go in here. <laughs>
0: no, I mean I do, but, but not not on the give, podcast. Give it a, a, not, not I do, but not on the podcast. <laughs> anyway, uh, so forty four percent return, fifty percent return. Were those multifamily deals, or what? What were the assets?
1: One was well, two were multifamily. One of them is was a ground was a ground deal.
0: Ground up, you mean?
1: Yeah, we're supposed to agree. Bought land, we're supposed to do round up development. Then we got a crazy buy it offer that we're still working on finalizing. But uh, yeah. you mean
0: on the land? They just bought the like you're flipping the land as it turns out because you just got a better. Uh, offer. Yeah,
1: we're yeah we didn't even yeah we
0: we didn't even finish the permitting process and someone wants the land for us at a crazy price. Uh, and then you said you're on the third process of vetting. So uh, sponsors and so what are you doing on your third on your third iteration that you weren't doing first or second?
1: Right. So well, it's kinda of what I mentioned before. The first the first iteration was was we were just trying to figure out like who was good and who wasn't good. It wasn't any really clear process. The second round was after we had that loss, we said we got it. we can't do this again. So at that point we really just tightened the we, we tightened everything. and said we're only taking operators who come to us either that we know personally or come to us through people who are professionals in real estate We can't just take any referral from anybody because you know just because you know the guy is a friend is a neighbor doesn't mean he's a good real estate operator so we really tighten the tighten things right we got really tight at that point. Uh, we had a very limited range of operators, but in those years we weren't doing a lot. We were still building out a lot of our marketing, our processes, our investor base. You know, when you're focusing on on the smaller end of the market and trying to stay in the small end of the market, we're not raising huge sums of money. I mean, right now we're raising north of a million dollars each raise, and that's coming from like 30, 40 investors, uh, mostly U.S. based, some in Israel, because that's where we're at that stage. We're like we're going in the crowdfunding direction almost. But back then, doing that, we weren't pulling in so much. But then we got to this point where. We kind of had a larger investor base, and we had deal flow, and that's when we said, you know, we have to be smarter about this. and And we sat down, we took a lot of time, and thought about it a lot, and tested it out on other people. and And I think we have a pretty solid process now. By the time we go on board, it's it's a process that we can use to get really comfortable with people really fast, to get to know them and their business really fast. And by the time we go to our people, we can give them a very clear picture: this is who they are, this is why we like them, this is what we know about them, this is what they've done. We have a very clear picture, and we can inform our investors what who they are, what they're doing. And, uh, you know, we're, we're not going to go to our investor base and say like, yeah, we know these guys, we trust these guys, trust us, put money in. It's, this is the research we did. These are the facts on the table. Make your own decision.
0: How many sponsors have you been involved in over the last year, couple of years, would you say? I mean,
1: we, we have onboarded right now, probably around uh, 10 to 12 operators with two coming on every month. We only started, this process is put in place end of like the middle of last year. So we're, we probably have about, yeah, about 12, 15 sponsors on tap. How many have we done deals with? Probably
0: 10. Got it. I know you just said that, you know, your your deals you're doing now, it could be a million dollar raise. Uh, what has been an average is always a funny word, but lacking a better one. What has been an average of size of deals?
1: I guess going to clarify, we say size of deal, I'm talking about the equity that I'll bring into a deal. Some deals right. we we'll do, a lot of deals we we'll do as, a, as an LP side. Yeah, average is a tough number. It is a couple of years ago. I mean, until, until I was like this, the first three years I was operating, we were doing about 300 arrays. By last year, we were doing like 600 arrays and, and even higher in some situations. The last year we were doing, I mean, the, the races that we didn't raise a lot on, that was because we were captain how much you could bring into the deal. Uh, like there's only a certain amount of space left. Like we did the last six months, we did one raise at 500 and one raise at 550. But both those deals, that was the max we could raise for it, and we filled it up in a day and a half. These are two other raises, where we put in like we did about on average one 1.2 per 1.2 million for each one of those raises. So you know, we're growing.
0: And is the way it's structured, uh, David. Are you basically so? So you said LP. Are you an LP? in these deals, and then you create a structure, an LLC that your investors are in, or how does it work? Yeah, that's exactly it. Very interesting. You know, I'm, I'm an LP as well, and I've probably put money in directly, well, and through a couple, I call them capital raisers, they could be co-GPs, the vernacular gets a little fuzzy for me, apart from my episode last week, it was fuzzy before then. It's nerve wracking for me. You know, I tend to second guess myself and the sponsor, like within seconds of cutting, you know, wiring the money. And I'm coming to the point where I'm really trying to adhere to the following, even though I've not been as disciplined as I should about it, is, you know, the 80-20 rule in sales is that 20% of the people make 80% of the money and it's a commentary on people in life, I believe, or at least a commentary on competency, which is another way of saying most people are um, incredibly incompetent and don't know what they're doing. And again, it's probably generous because it's probably ninety percent don't. And so over here in the states, which I'm sure you know this, you know, there's these uh, factories of of coaches and mentoring programs that are putting you know people that aren't even shaving yet on the out on the street, raising you know a lot of money from people. So what I'm trying to do is find people that have. A niche. They're only doing one thing. It could be self-storage. It could be light industrial. Ideally, it's even more refined than that. It could be in one market. It could be of a certain size. And I'm really just trying to hedge my bets. And so I'm going on and on. And it's really, ideally, your podcast. What do you respond to what I'm saying?
1: Uh, I, I see what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. I think uh, the, I mean, the, you, said, you, said, you made a couple of points there. I think to the point of, of a lot of people being out there right now, people are attracted to the space because there's money to be made here and money's always going to attract people. Uh, so you are, you are going to have that. In terms of the diversification, in terms of finding those operators, I, I'm 100% on board with that. That's exactly what we do. That's exactly what we do, is, is we look for those operators who have their, their spaces they work within. And, um, and if anything, in the last year or two, we've been focusing on going more and more niche just because of the challenge of finding good stuff and, and you can make returns on in these class A, class B markets even. So I'm not saying we're going to class C properties, but we're, 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 we're talking to more and more operators who are working in some very niche tertiary markets that still haven't been discovered yet. So we're finding some interesting returns over there, and that's something we're doing. So I think kind of what you described, you're trying to do for yourself, is what we're doing for our investors.
0: How would you? I'm going to like make up my own own word here, hierarchies, which you know clearly isn't a word. But what's the hierarchy in terms of like what it, would you say is the number one thing that you look for or that you try to avoid in in finding a, a sponsor?
1: The number one thing? Yeah number one thing I would say is is obfuscation
0: to see if they're if to, get, to see if they're obfuscating
1: if they if they're hiding anything if there's anything which is not clear if they're beating around the bush on anything to me that's a huge red flag because you know if you're not professional enough if you're not um, experienced enough those are things you can make up but if you're gonna if we're gonna partner together I'm gonna send you a wire for you know today 1.2 million dollars of other people's money. There has to be total daylight between us.
0: I got it. You know, one of the things I'm I'm trying to do, well, not trying to do, but I've c- committed to doing, because I've been investing in any kind of meaningful way in the last, uh, I'm going to say, 18 months, in maybe even that's even on the high side. I've I had some money out there, but really in the last year, and um, nothing's gone bad. As it, you know, but again, the market has carried a lot of. And mm-hmm. I made some decent investments, whatever, uh, that seem to be doing well. But I, I will tell you one thing now that I'm in a year, a year plus, that I think says a lot. It doesn't necessarily say everything, but it's the reporting. And so what I'm going to be doing moving forward is just I'm going to try to never forget asking for the reporting. Because that's all over the map, I will say, in terms of the sponsors I'm working with. is Some people, they're just they're just flat out unprofessional, which by the way, doesn't necessarily mean they're not good operators, but it's a, it's a process of ruthless exclusion. And in terms of like vetting a sponsors moving forward, it's just one way to do that. And, you know, I guess conversely, sophisticated reporting doesn't necessarily mean they're great operators on the one hand, but on the other hand, I think it kind of lends itself to that. The other thing I'm looking for is vertical integration, especially in the multifamily space, because I think that's very meaningful and a really tight geographic location. Anyway, FYI.
1: No, 100%. One of the things that we check for we vet a new operator is we ask for three deals that closed over a year ago. And we asked for all the reports that were published on those deals.
0: Yeah, it's a great idea.
1: And we review all those reports so we can see how it's operating and we see how they how they communicate
0: would you ever or have you invested in, uh, and I'll use the term because I can't come up with another one, capital raisers. So in other words, these guys that just raise money for other sponsors, have you invested with any of those guys or is it all direct?
1: No, with me, it's got to be direct. I've had some of them raised with me, uh, but I have to be direct because I take that degree of responsibility and have. have. We have a, I mean, the, the, what I offer to my investors is a very high degree of counting and reporting on what's going on and clarity into what what who the people are. And that's why my investors trust me. So I, I can't go through anybody else. It can never be that way. I have to have a direct line of communication with the operator.
0: Have you invested in deals and maybe this is more on the multifamily side where there's different share classes, A and B? Sure. and, and do you have a preference?
1: No, it's as almost it makes sense. I have to understand how the different share classes all line up um, usually I'm coming in on the better share class. Usually I've had deals where uh, because I'm pulling money together and I'm bringing a significant sum of money, I'm able to get investors in at a better arrangement vis-a-vis the operator, where even after our fees are taken off, um, investors coming in through us are making a better return than if they gone directly to the operator because we're pulling their funds. I, I myself use a use a multiple class structure in my entities. I, again, I t- as I said, I take $1,000 investments. I can't charge the $10,000 investment investor the same way I'm charging $100,000 or the $500,000 investor. So I also create classes of investors with different levels of
0: fees. Interesting. So did you say on your with your own funds, did I hear you correctly where you might do different share classes when you're just dealing with your own money? Absolutely. We yeah. always do it. That's our standard are there certain assets that you'd be more inclined to go in as an A class uh, versus B where, you know, it's just a fixed number? You're not participating in the upside or in, in converse?
1: So maybe I misunderstood your question. You said A and B class. You're talking about preferred equity versus regular
0: equity? Yes.
1: Okay, fine. Cause, okay, cause My there bad. There's ways to have those different classes uh, set up. So with, with preferred equity, what that, that's a whole nother can of worms because preferred equity is, it can be structured in so many different ways. So I've never actually done a deal where there's a preferred equity piece ahead of me. Um, I wouldn't want to be a preferred equity piece. I think it's it's an appropriate play for people who have a lot of money and they're looking for something good, strong, stable, and reliable. Uh, and it's a great way to make you know a good 10% on your money if you have a lot to go around. Um, but if you're in that stage where you're investing because you're just trying to build a normal retirement account for yourself, you can't necessarily afford to, to forego the upside and and then the risk on the equity piece is not so great as it is so it's worth going for that um we're we're having an equity a preferred equity piece ahead of you becomes risky is you have to know what the terms are uh, a preferred equity piece can have something called hard it could be a hard pref which means that if you miss one payment to them the pref holders take over the whole deal and you're out so you got to watch out for that uh, another thing to watch out for is I've I've heard of deals where the PREF equity investors negotiate for themselves 100% of the depreciation. So they're taking a small piece of the deal, they're making 10% a year, and against that, they're getting 100% of the depreciation, which as wealthy individuals as they usually are, they're using to offset their capital gains. But that means that my investors aren't getting those losses, which First of all, it covers at least the their, the cash flow, and they've come to expect it reasonably so. So you know it has to be a really great reason to go into a deal like that. But I mean, the key with the pref is you know debt, normal debt is is pretty predictable. You don't have to worry about the terms. Pref equity is a much more creative piece, and if you're coming in behind or above a pref equity piece, you have to really know the terms of the pref side uh, to understand what you're getting.
0: Yeah, I, it makes a, a ton of sense. I I actually have pref equity in a handful of deals. I I don't consider myself uber wealthy, but you know I'm not young starting out either. Um, so I share your perspective on it. I guess I'm I guess though I'm on the right side of the equation on those deals, in deals that I think really have. Just such an extraordinary likelihood of of appreciating a lot because there's a huge value add play, and I'm in with the right sponsor. Uh, those I might go into class B and bet on the upside of a deal. Do you do you have a? Uh, I'm sure you do a point of view on financing, you know, amongst sponsors, w- w- what you're comfortable with or not. Yes, I mean, I'm, I like
1: I like financing. Obviously, we're in real estate. You know, it's hard to make good money on cash only deals most of the time. Uh, oh, I, just I mean, like I mean, sense.
0: I mean, kinds of financing.
1: Uh, can you clarify? What sure.
0: So, of- so, floating versus fixed. Do uh, you have a viewpoint on bridge loans, you know, lev- the amount of leverage that makes sense, uh, hmm. depending on asset class, et cetera, et cetera? I should have been more clear. Okay. So,
1: uh, all, all of the above. Okay. So, in terms of, I'll start with, start with the easy one first. In terms of loan uh, debt to income. Sorry, not that income, sorry, LTV. Um, the deal has to be strong at like a 70 or 75 maximum LTV. I've seen deals where they'll push it to 85% just to squeeze out like an average middling return, which tells me there's kind of like financially manufacturing a deal, which I don't like. And it and I'm sure the deal did well. No, I'm looking I'm thinking about one deal in particular that came my way three years ago, and knowing how the markets worked, it probably did okay. Well, the truth is, I wonder if COVID may have knocked them out a little bit. It was class A. they probably should have been okay. So, it probably did okay, but it's, it's a level of risk that that I'm not willing to take, where you have like you know a 15% margin of error there. I don't like that. Um, in terms of fixed versus floating, you know, it, it's it's I think anybody taking fixed uh, floating right now, I mean, is is is, is I mean, it's got to be a really good reason to do it, given where interest rates are today and where they may be going. You know, fix is the way to go, obviously. Uh, a couple of years ago, people were taking fixed, and it's gone down. Then I have a couple of deals where you know we're being held up by uh, by yield maintenance. But you know, you can't you can't get mad at somebody for taking fixed at like four percent. You know, it's a good it's a good deal. After you got stuck, as rates went lower, okay, it happened. But uh, I don't I don't see rates going negative. I know there's some people out there who think rates are going to go negative in the U.S. I think most people don't see it that way. Um, I, I don't see it happening, but you know we'll have to see. You know, as I said before, we're in this weird. Uh, period now, where money has taken on a very strange um, state of existence, but yeah, I would, I would. I uh, mean, the, the, the fixed rates today are, are they're good.
0: What's your take, uh, asset class wise? It just seems like there were asset classes. I'll say even three years ago. I'll just arbitrarily say three years. Certainly, three to five years ago, specifically mobile home parks, maybe self-storage that, you know, it's not like they were big secrets back then, but to the extent that maybe they were more secrets, that there are no secrets right now. And so I'm wondering your viewpoint on that, you know, holistically. 100%.
1: So I, I think those asset class, as you said, they, they, they people like to say, oh, they've always gone up and you're right, but the, the cap rates on those properties have never been this low. Um, There's a lot more interest in them right now, which is going to somewhat commoditize them and may create a bubble in the space. We're still seeing some really nice self-storage deals, some nice uh, mobile home park deals. A lot of them, especially the mobile home parks, are kind of under the radar of some of the bigger players because they're smaller, which is kind of the market I like to play in. Uh, But again, they are coming in, they are buying up these smaller assets as part of a portfolio, especially in self-storage. It's happening a lot. So... I think it's still a strong sector we're still buying there um, but I am aware of the fact that we're is that we're in a different place than we were 20 years ago and you know we, we're in it, we're in an interesting place historically because there's so much data out there you know when I first started this thing in 2017 I was very bearish on multifamily believe it or not. Because my, my thesis was, you know, everyone's talking about it. Everyone, I, I was talking to people who had no business knowing anything about anything. Like, yeah, only multifamily. I'm like, what do you guys know about multifamily? And to me, that was a big warning sign. It was like back in 2001 when everyone's like telling you uh, like the barbershop what stocks to buy. Like, to me, that was, a, that was a big red flag. And I figured, okay, this thing is peaking. And then it didn't peak. And then I noticed every single year, the actual housing gap of, of units available was actually to, to units required was increasing. I think right now there's like a five million unit shortage, and back then it was a two million unit shortage. And I think what was happening for a while, I think right now the big jump was because of the cost of uh, the, the supply chain issues and the cost of raw materials. But for a bunch of years, there was a two million unit shortage. And what I suspect happened there was is you know the normal boom bust cycle happens when people overdevelop, and I think we're at a stage where we have a lot more data, and people are actually using that data. And they're being more strategic in their building and they're not getting exuberance and just throwing stuff up. And that's interesting. And and multifamily has really, you know, continue to grow in a big way I mean the cap rates keep shrinking I kind of wonder how low it can go um, and there'll probably be some sort of snapback at some point but you know and this is part of my investment background is is I, I, the way you make money is you, is you keep buying through the snapbacks you, know, if you if you're if you're worried about when the next crash is going to be and you stop that's when you lose out I know a lot of people who stopped buying in 2018 2019 because they're worried about a crash. Well, now they're coming back around three years later and like, okay, how do I get back into this thing? Because I just missed out on three years of amazing growth. So, you know, pulling out is not really an option, but, you know, being eyes wide open is.
0: Very interesting. Interesting, interesting perspective. And uh, I don't think, uh, I think many, many share it and, uh, you know, I kind of do as well. Question is probably the easiest one is how would one uh, get a hold of you if they wanted to, uh, you know, maybe learn more about what you're doing?
1: So the best way is you can follow me on LinkedIn. My name is spelled D O V I D. It's like David with an O. Last name is P R E I L. Um, I also have a podcast called The Think Wealthy Podcast. You can get it at Apple, Google. We have a it's on it's on my website also, um, and it has its own website there. I talk more about broad financial ideas, not necessarily about investing in real estate. But if you want to learn more about my philosophy to all these things and how we think about it, it's a it's a it's a great resource very short podcast. It's usually episodes are four to seven minutes. The idea is to give over the ideas, short punch each time, make it quick and easy to listen to. So again, LinkedIn through the podcast and I have a website, ydlpinvestments.com. That's ydlpinvestments.com.
0: How long did it take you to figure out the uh, most expedient way for somebody to be able to spell your name was say David with an O?
1: I figured that, that That was an old one. <laughs> well, I figured.
0: I mean, you, you, you had that figured out by about ten, and or you know, or did it take more? Uh, t- no, I was
1: younger. <laughs> I spelled it with an A, but then I got older, and like you know, what everyone has all their, everyone's using ethnic names these days. So like, why shouldn't I spell it? The <laughs> way I want to. And then I'm like, oh well, I'm making my life more complicated. So I have to come up with something really fast.
0: I see. All right. Well, this has been fantastic. And uh, what time is it? There, it's like like two in the morning or something, right?
1: No, no, no. It's, it's not even one o'clock yet.
0: Uh, yeah, right. Hey, Jesus, last time I've been up at one in the morning was like, you never. Nothing good happens after like 10. Well, when you're, when you're doing
1: U.S. real estate from Israel, you have to have later days.
0: Makes sense. Well, this has been a fantastic discussion from my point of view, and uh, hopefully you've enjoyed it, and I look forward to being in touch with you.
1: Absolutely. I had a great time. Thanks so much for having me on.
0: You got it, David. Thanks.